long-term recovery, being hospitalized, racism, being a black man and dealing with trauma and managing mental health. In this episode, I cover it all in my interview with Carl Shallowhorn. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to The Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Carl Shallowhorn, who is the president and founder of Shallowhorn Consulting. He has a master's degree in student personnel administration from SUNY Buffalo State, is a New York State credentialed alcoholism and substance abuse counselor, and has worked in the field of addiction and mental health for 19 years. Carl is the author of Working on Wellness, A Practical Guide to Mental Health, as well as Leadership Through the Lens of the 12 Steps. Additionally, Carl has been selected as a presenter for TEDx Buffalo 2021, with his topic being centered on African-American men and mental health. I'm so excited to chat with you, Carl. Oh, I'm really excited to be with you too, Melanie. This is great. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show. So, I wanted to just start and hear a little bit about your own mental health story, your mental health journey. I know there are a lot of twists and turns. So tell me, when did mental health become an issue for you? And tell me where your story begins. Well, my story is like actually like many others. My first episode that I had, because I live with bipolar disorder, and my first episode was when I was a college freshman. I was going to school in Michigan. And because of the fact of being away from home, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol, stress of school, I had a major psychotic episode. Now, this was, this was 1981. So, of course, long time ago. But since that time, you know, it's been a lot of ups and downs and everything. And, and for the first seven or eight years, I cycled in and out of hospitals and, and until I finally got uh, connected with the 12-step program in which I kind of began to turn things around and then things, you know, got better from there. But the first, I'd say, eight years were really rough. So you had a history of addiction. Do you think that addiction was caused by mental health issues that you were self-medicating or that it was this addiction that was causing your mental health or was it just kind of bi-directional? You know, it's interesting because, well, first of all, I do have a family history of mental illness. I'm adopted. So that's sort of a little bit of a more backstory. And my birth mother lived with severe mental illness. And, and also there were some, a lot of drugs and things like that that she used, uh, at, you know, during parts of her life. But also growing up, my father had, my, my father, my father who adopted me, my, my, well, my real father had a drinking problem. So I lived with that. He did stop me when I was older, but I did grow up with that kind of atmosphere and environment. 
The thing that's interesting, though, is that people often ask that question, which came first? You know, it's like the idea of the chicken or the egg. For me, it was the heavy alcohol use that I did in high school. And then when I went to college, that's when I began the drug use. That's what I think in many ways triggered my manic episode and, and essentially started the whole you know, experience of living with the mental illness. Interesting. I actually, you know, a couple of years ago was definitely self-medicating with wine before I got, you know, on antidepressants and anti-anxiety. And, you know, I recently just quit altogether because I realized it was not helping my mental health and actually it really cancels out antidepressants. So it's like, well, if I really want to take care of my mental health, I really just need to stop this. But, you know, it's I'm always just so fascinated because I find myself like I have self-medicated in that way. But then when you do that, in some ways, it makes it worse. So I think this Mm -hmm. is definitely a cycle. So you talk about this mental breakdown. You were hospitalized and also had electroconvulsive therapy. That's not something that I think a lot of people have heard about in their experiences. I know it's kind of... um, had less popularity these days. And so I'm curious about your experience and uh, learning more about that. Well, it's, it's interesting. You talk about ECT, or it's also known as shock therapy, of course, back in the day. Some people might have seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, I don't know if you have, but with Jack Nicholson, where he goes to the procedure. And it's, and, the, and, and the the cinematic depiction is awful. It's horrific. But it does reflect somewhat what it's like. But my experience was when I was in the Buffalo Psychiatric Center, and I had a series of six treatments. The idea behind electroconvulsive therapy is, well, first of all, they still to the day don't know entirely how it works. But the way I would describe it is it kind of jumpstarts the brain. It somehow triggers the brain in a way that, say, if you didn't respond to traditional medications, it's, a, it's an alternative. There's also, there's misconceptions about is that it's dangerous, it's harmful. I mean, some people do report some memory loss, but I, I didn't have it. But it was, it was, you know, something that, that fortunately I didn't have to go through for a long period of time. Some people do have to go through it on a regular basis. I have a friend who receives, I think on a monthly basis, you know, ECT. So it's different for everyone, but they still do it today. It's still not commonly known, but it is used, especially for those, like I said, who might be, we could say medication resistant. Yeah, I think there are certain treatment resistant options like ECT. I know there's been talk about psychedelics these days, lots mm-hmm. of different mm-hmm. options for people who might not be traditionally served for antidepressants. So even though in my mind, when I think of electroconvulsive therapy, it's like, oh my gosh, people are getting shocked in their brain and it seems so horrific. But you know, when you kind of step back and you're like, well, if it actually does help and the person that it's happening to, you know, it works for them, then I mean, what what can you do? Well, and I just want to add too that there's a lot of misconceptions because you think of it's almost like you have this vision of Frankenstein, of course, where he's got all like a, a million volts going through. It's actually a very small, uh, does you say, uh, I don't know if it's voltage or whatever, how you would measure it, but it's it's a very small impulse that they use that triggers this, it triggers a convulsion, but it's not like you're getting, you know, a thousand volts through your brain. So that's one of the big misconceptions. Thank you for clarifying that. That's so helpful to kind of understand how it really works and from someone that has received it. So, um, you know, I spoke with Natalie Torres Haddad in, in a few episodes before, and she was talking about also a mental breakdown that led to hospitalization. And so I'm so curious, you know, what was that experience like for you having this breakdown and then entering the hospital? What was the treatment like, you know, 
were you aware when you were in the hospital of like what was happening? Did the hospitalization actually help or did it harm you? Um, I'm just curious. Well, so I've had in my life, I'd say eight hospitalizations. And the first time was, like I said, when I had my first psychotic episode, that first experience was was truly a blur. I don't remember much of it at all because I was literally so out of it. I think I was so, so heavily medicated. And of course, one thing we know about hospitalizations, the main goal is to stabilize the individual. So the goal was to get me to a place where they can be discharged and follow up with other treatment. The other times that I was in, I was more coherent, but I was still coming in to the hospital from having had a manic episode with psychosis. That was another thing too. I, I had psychosis, which means like a I would have delusions, this this loss of touch with reality, this this, you know, ungrounded beliefs and so forth. But what happened though was was over time I'd go into the hospital and I certainly knew what was going on around me. And there were things that were done that I think helped. But a lot of times it's centered around medication. It's centered around, like I said, the stabilization process. And they weren't long stay. Well, the two stays at the Buffalo Psychiatric Center were longer. And those were probably the, the most difficult. That's where I did have the ECT. And those were the ones that really were probably the most traumatic for me, considering the environment that I was in. That was a place where, I mean, it goes, harkens back to the old days of very institutional and just, it's really kind of scary. But certainly in the most part, these hospitalizations were meant to kind of get me on track. Um, there were activities that we would do. There were opportunities to you know, talk to other patients, but primarily it was about stabilization. That was the main thing. And that's how it still is today. That's what the, the main goal is. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. I keep thinking of the movie Girl Interrupted and kind of mm -hmm, this mm -hmm, idea mm -hmm. that I have of what hospitalization looks like. And I think it's important to you know, uncover that stigma and like what it actually looks like today, because I know we probably all have a lot of thoughts on what it looks like or what it seems like. But if you've never been there, then, you know, you don't know. So thank you so much for sharing that insight into that experience. I also wanted to, you know, dive in a little bit more about your addiction. You mentioned that you are in long-term recovery, which congratulations, I know that is not easy. I wanted to talk to you about how have you been able to stay in long-term recovery, especially right now, given the pandemic? I know so many people are relapsing, going back to old patterns, mm -hmm. because this is unprecedented word of the year. And, you know, so many people are in quarantine and they're going back to alcohol, drugs, whatever vice keeps them comfort. So how have you been able to stay in long-term recovery? What are your tips for people? Well, one of the first things I had to do, and this is really hard to do, but early on I had to essentially, and I, I just use the term divorce myself from the people that were toxic in my life, the people that were a threat to my recovery. And, and in other words, I couldn't hang out with my buddies. I couldn't go to the bars. I couldn't. Now, mind you, that was a hard choice because that was certainly how I'd socialize, but I had to make that decision in order to make the change. But what I was able to do, though, through my recovery program, through my 12-step program, I was able to find new friends. I was able to find new people to, to hang out with and have fun with. And early on, I discovered that I could have fun without using drugs. And so that was one of the first things that I had. Like, I love music. I was able to go to concerts. I was able to enjoy music in a way that I never had before. And then over time, I developed this sense that support is so important, family support. Luckily, I, was, I had support in my family. I had new friends, like I said. And so that has been probably one of the biggest things I think over time that's helped me even, even today going through COVID through all this, my family support, my friend support has been 
crucial as far as me withstanding all the stress that goes on right now in terms of, you know, not just addiction, but my mental health. And I always encourage people to try to find a support system to, to kind of, if you, if you need to lean on. Now, it may be harder now because of COVID. We may not be able to get together as much and things like that, but we do have some technologies and we have done some ways to, to reach out or even be socially distant. But I think social support is one of the biggest things. Also, exercise has been a big one. Now, exercise has been tougher because of COVID, I think for a lot of people and myself included, because of just falling out of the routine that I was in previously. But still, you know, exercise has been a big one to kind of help me stay healthy. And, and also, as far as addiction, it's a way of, of kind of maybe even transferring a, a bad addiction for a good one, <laughs> which, of course, some people have done. And, and to mind you, you can take anything too far with exercise, but learning moderation, learning not to overindulge, learning how to just keep things in check, that was a big one for me. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to find a replacement behavior that helps you deal with that. I know like when you feel like, oh, I'm giving up drinking or I'm giving up drugs, it feels like a loss. But if you replace that with whenever I want to drink, I'm going to read. Whenever I want to drink, I'm going to go for a walk. Like you have this replacement behavior and soon enough you can start rewiring your brain so that when you have that impulse, you know that you're doing something different. And totally hear you on the exercise thing. I was boxing so intensely, like five to six times a week. And I haven't boxed since February and I'm so sad about it. And like, it was such a great uh, tension reliever and like stress reliever and good to get out resentment and anger. And, you know, <laughs> now, now I just go for long walks on the morning because that's something that's doable right now. But mm -hmm. like even just the walks and getting back into the routine of walks has really just helped me. And so um, thank you for sharing sure, that. Sure. And so I wanted to talk about your show. You have a show called Color Me Healthy that focuses on wellness for the African-American community. I'm curious, what inspired you to focus on this particular community and what is your show about? So Color Me Healthy is, as you described, a show that focuses on the African-American community. So I'm located in Buffalo, New York. And the organization that I work with is the Community Health Center of Buffalo. I was a full-time employee. And then I transitioned into being an independent contractor, but I still stay on as the host of this weekly Facebook Live program. But the idea actually came from the CEO, um, oh, Dr. Nice. Levan Ansari, and she is very invested in the community and want to provide a means of, of, first of all, promoting what the health center does, but also promoting wellness. So, we, so my idea was, like, let's have a program focused on wellness. We even had a contest amongst employees to name it. And one of the employees, one of our nurses, Trinette Alston, came up with the idea, calling me healthy. We loved it. So she won, she won the contest. But over time, it's evolved. So at the beginning, it focused a lot on health. You know, we had someone on who talked about addiction. I talked about mental health. We had our physical therapist, our diabetes educator. But it's evolved, actually, to a place now where it's actually more of a public affairs program, which incorporates some parts of wellness. But most recently, we had the present CEO of the Buffalo Urban League, which is an organization that works with the African-American community. It's a longstanding organization in Buffalo and nationally. And we've had other you know, local Black uh, leaders. And, and so it's becoming a program that is really touching on topics and subject matter that is really important to the local community that can drive people to action, which is a lot. We do, we've been talking a lot about voter education and the reason why people need to vote. So it's really evolved in a way that I love it. I enjoy it. You know, it's interesting. So I talked about my experience of being in the hospital all those years. 
I was in college and I graduated from Buffalo State College with a degree in broadcasting, even though I was being hospitalized all those years. So, so yeah. doing a show like this, doing a show like this is, is just really right up my alley, even though it's many years later. But the show focus is, like I said, is around addressing the needs of the local community. But seeing that it's on Facebook, it goes, you know, has a broader audience, which is pretty cool. That's so awesome. That's such a full circle moment for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. So you're talking about serving the African-American community and something that I'm interested in talking about further is what are the barriers and stigmas that black men in particular face when trying to get mental health care? I know in episode two, I spoke with Sinclair Caesar, who also suffers from bipolar disorder. And he was talking a lot about kind of the culture where you don't show your problems, you know, just talk to God about it. And so I'm curious what your perspective is, you know, what are the barriers and stigmas that black men face when trying to get mental health care? Yeah, I, d- I did hear your interview with Sinclair. I thought it was excellent. He brought up a lot of good points in that, you know, I think the culture among African-Americans in general, a lot of it actually ties back to slavery and the history of, of slavery that came around over 400 years ago, where there's a condition actually called post-traumatic slave syndrome. It's a theory from Dr. Joyce Garee. And, and so she posits that Essentially, there are a lot of you know, would be maladaptive behaviors or reactions that happen amongst Americans as a result of, of this history of slavery, Jim Crow, police brutality, and so forth. But for African-American men, what happens is, is that basically being Black in America already is, is stigmatized. And so we know that for men, they carry the weight of knowing that they're at risk. So you know, when you think about it, there's this idea of, of stress. So being stressed as a black man is an everyday thing. So we know that stress releases, uh, releases cortisol, which then affects our body, you know, it, it, you know, adrenaline, fight or flight or freeze. We know that's a reaction that can happen. Mm-hmm. So the result is that people are going around, these men are going around in a constant state of vigilance, this constant state of, of heightened awareness and which wears on their mental health. As a result of that, men oftentimes carry this inside, as Sinclair said, and many people know, because the the feeling in the black community is that you yeah, you don't show weakness. You have to be strong. And of course, what will end up happening is that men have this, whether they be dealing with depression or anxiety, that if they aren't sharing with anyone, it then ends up being the kind of thing where they do have other issues. They might take on alcohol and drug use. They might end up, you know, perhaps even domestic violence happens. In other words, these maladaptive behaviors that result from these mental health concerns. Now, one thing we also know is that there isn't enough treatment available. And what I mean by that is that there are not enough people of color as behavioral health professionals to help Black men. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I know from personal experience, and I also know both, and because I've worked as a clinician, I've worked as a counselor, and I also know from my own personal experience of being a client that there are so few therapists of color that you know, if I were to seek someone out, it's going to be particularly difficult for me to find someone who who looks like me, who understands my experience, and who I feel comfortable opening up to. I mean, the, the typical black guy—I'll just use that term—goes in to see a white therapist who might be in her in her early 30s, you know, and then just not of the same background or culture, 
how is he going to relate to her in, in terms of feeling comfortable opening up and talking? And but the same respect, how is she going to be able to relate to him? Even the finest therapist, there's still we talk about cultural competence and cultural humility and then all these things in the profession. But it's relatability. I think a lot of it has come down to it where men feel like, you know, why am I going to go talk? And also it's a white thing, right? They also say therapies for white people. That's oftentimes felt in, in the black community. So, so we have to break through the stigma. And that's one of the things I try to do in the work I promote in my mental health work, that we have to get eliminate the stigma so people can get that help. But men definitely face these issues very much so. Yeah, I think we need to get rid of this idea that therapy is just for white people. And yes, one of the ways that we can do that is trying to get more people of color in the field. Because, you know, I've talked with many people on this podcast on why it's so important to be able to have a therapist of color that can relate to your shared experience and what has happened in your life. Because yeah, like therapy is based on extreme trust and vulnerability. And if there's not even that shared thread at all, it can be very difficult for probably both parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's interesting too, because um, I know that there's men that I know that do go to therapy and, and, but you know, what's interesting. They do talk about how good it is for them, how advantageous it is for them to try it. But in fact, there's a, um, let me just give a shout out to a national organization called BEAM, uh, Black Emotional Mental Health. Uh, you know, so, so it's a national organization and you could just Google BEAM Mental Health and it's basically a network and it's an advocacy organization for African-Americans centered on mental health. And what it does is it promotes mental health. They have a number of programs online. They have a number of services that they advocate for resources. They actually just announced an online directory for therapists of color. So this is one of the positive things that's come out in, in the last few years about promoting mental health, that people can find the resources that they need. Also, online therapy is becoming more, more common. So it might be a little bit easier to reach someone through online therapy if you don't find one in your local area. Yeah, I think that's one of the good things that has happened with COVID is that, you know, we have expanded the network of available teletherapy. And yeah, maybe that will make it easier to find someone that looks like you that you can relate to more. And, mm -hmm. you know, I know you talked a lot about this idea that men feel uncomfortable sharing and feel like they have to keep in, keep it inside because they're going to be thought of as weak. And I always think of this as like, the other side of toxic masculinity, or, or rather, we talk about toxic masculinity as like affecting women and how it affects women. I know that's like big in feminist circles and the circles that I'm in, but also toxic masculinity affects men just as bad. You know, there's this feeling that they can't cry, that they can't open up, that they have to be strong, that they can't be weak. And it's like these cultural conditionings from birth to adulthood. It's just like, it's bad for men and it's bad for women. And so I think, you know, we need to look at that critically. And I hope that we can start breaking down the stigma around mental health and realizing that it's not weak for a man to cry. It's not weak for a man to ask for help. It's actually one of the bravest, strongest things that you can do. And I think it's going to need, you know, a different kind of care and attention for all of us going forward. And I hope that we can start breaking down those barriers. I have to make a comment about that because you maybe just it triggered a thought that, so, you know, I'm adopted. I grew up raised by black parents and in my entire lifetime, in my father's 87 years, I never saw him cry. Wow. Even when his mother died. And I know, and I know for a fact, actually, when I think about when he really started drinking heavily, it was when his mother died, my mm -hmm. grandmother. 
Yeah. He never cried. He never cried. He never showed actually any sign of, of, uh, now mind you, I know he's feeling it, but I mean, mm-hmm. I was young, but still that kind of thing would stay with you. If you saw your father struggling, whatever, um, you know, I didn't see anything on the outside, but like I said, I believe it triggered the feeling so severely that he drank as a means of coping with that loss for that sick of a loss. So, you know, you, you just made me realize that I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I never, I've never saw my father cry. And you know what? I only saw my mother cry once. Wow. So my mother died at the age of 60. The only time my mother cried, ironically, was when I was going to college in Michigan at 18 at the bus station, because they took me to the Greyhound bus station at, you know, at like five in the morning. And she cried when I got on the bus. Mm. But that's the only time ever I saw my mother cry. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And that reminds me of my episode um, with Kristen Winchester. And we were talking about this narrative of like the strong black woman and how that's also toxic for black women because they feel like they also can't be strong. And, you know, that just triggered me when you said you only saw her cry once. And I just think for people to not, feel comfortable crying or reaching out. Like I know, like I've done the research crying actually releases so many good endorphins. It's actually mm-hmm. very cathartic. Like even though it's literally emotionally and physically exhausting, you do feel cathartic afterwards. And so I feel, you know, for people who don't feel comfortable doing that, like, yeah, it must be festering inside, which it can turn to alcoholism and addiction and abuse because there's no healthy outlet for that. Right, right. And of course, we know that certainly, as we talked about in the beginning, that addiction and mental health go hand in hand. And it's almost like they feed off each other. So if one issue isn't being addressed, the other is exacerbated until eventually you're in this cycle that is perpetual and and you can't get out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I remember when I was drinking more heavily, I would drink to self-medicate and deal with my anxiety and then I would feel better. And then the next day I'd be super depressed that I drank. And then I would want to drink more because I was depressed. And it was just like, this is a cycle that is not, it's not working for me. And yeah, like it just becomes bi-directional and, you know, both ways. And it just feeds into each other until you can really make a hard stop and look at those root causes. Like, why am I doing this? You know, what is missing from my self-care or from, you know, me seeking help because I'm doing it this one specific way and it's harming me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Luckily yeah. you had the insight to do that. Not everybody does. Yeah. So, and it's happening now more than ever. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of self-work and actually I'm very glad that I stopped drinking during the pandemic, which I never thought in a million years that I would be able to do in the past because it just seems like such a stressful time. But now it feels like such a perfect time. You know, we're not pressured mm-hmm. to go out to bars with friends. You know, we don't have that social peer pressure. And it's like, you know what, now's the time to really get those healthy practices in place and really focus on my mind and my mental health. And just a reminder for everyone, because I totally ignored the advice for years, alcohol literally cancels out your antidepressants. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, right. My, my psychiatrist was like, every time you drink, you should probably not even take your medicine because it doesn't even work. It's canceling it out. And I was just being a little brat and ignored it for literally years. And then I started feeling weird and bad. And I realized that it was affecting my mental health. So for anybody that is on antidepressants, you know, no shame if you are drinking, but just 
little PSA, it does cancel it out. And uh, I, I ignored that fact for years. So um, I also wanted to ask you, you know, there is so much going on with rampant police violence right now. Every week, every day, almost, it feels like there's a new hashtag, a new name, and it's traumatic for everyone, but in particular, Black men and women. And so I'm curious, what are some ways that Black men, but also Black women, can deal with the trauma surrounding rampant police violence? You know, that is such a challenging question because, first and foremost, you can't get away from it. Whether yeah. it be in your own community, in the media, especially, whether it be social media, traditional media, you know, you turn on the TV, you turn on the news, like you said, every day. I mean, I just got a, a, a news alert saying that that grand jury proceedings have been released about Breonna Taylor. Mm, so mm -hmm. every day it just goes, you know, and not to say that isn't a good thing for those things to be released, but it's, it reopens the wounds. And there's a thing called vicarious trauma as well. It's where you experience a trauma, someone else's trauma, and also secondary trauma. So if you were watching this on TV, even though you weren't there at the time, it could still traumatize you. And of course, that is amazing. I mean, think about all the people that that saw the George Floyd video. You see, I mean, oh you God, see a that man just, that broke me. <laughs> yeah, you see a man die right before your eyes. That is horrific. That is and I'll, can I just say something truthfully? Yeah, I didn't watch the I didn't watch the video. I saw I saw I saw the still shot, mm -hmm. but I, I intentionally did not watch the video because I knew it would be so disturbing. Mm -hmm. And I will have to say, like. I was sickly perverse about watching it. Like I didn't want to watch it because I knew it was going to mess me up. But I was like, I want to watch it and feel like I understand like why everyone's making such a big deal about it. What the, what's happening with the police? So I was like, I'm just going to try to be brave and watch it and see what's really going on. And oh boy, do I regret it because it mm. messed me up. It messed me up for the rest of the week, for the rest of the day. I was just bawling my eyeballs out because. Yeah, you, I mean, maybe you know the story, but you didn't see the video, but there's this part where he's literally crying out for his mom. Yes, and it's yeah, like, I've heard, I heard that. It's like this grown man on his deathbed, like crying for his mom. It just like made me bawl my eyes out. I like called my mom immediately afterwards. And I mean, yeah, I wish we would have never been able to see that. And I, I do regret watching it. And so I'm glad you didn't watch it, but it's horrible that it's out there. Now, now I have to say, you had that reaction. Mm -hmm. Imagine how the black community had what the reaction was for the black community. I know. I, you I know, can't so imagine. Not, not to mention these things have been going on for basically centuries. We know that, mm -hmm. but to see it so visually, you know, over eight minutes—I think it was eight minutes yeah. and forty-nine seconds—to yeah. to watch this, this this torture that it, it literally rips you apart emotionally. So so we know that it's the kind of thing that, first and foremost, how do you deal with that? How do you cope with that when it's happening every single day? Well, one thing to do is to try to, as best as possible, and it's hard to do, is to limit how you view these things. You know, I mean, just, and of course, so many people are into social media and sharing social media, but sometimes you have to, you know, keep scrolling, right? Don't click, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Or just not watch the news, and and you know, not to say that you have to put your head in the sand. I'm not saying that because we need to, we need to still be aware, and we still need to be able to act. And many times, these horrible tragedies create action. Of course, that's how you know Black Lives Matter 
has come out of that, out of Ferguson, even going back several years ago. So we know that people need to act, but that's another way that people can can cope is to come in together to advocate, to protest in peaceful ways in order to feel like you're making a difference. So in many ways, if you're feeling empowered and you're feeling like my voice is being heard, that is certainly a way to create of the sense of of being able to cope. Think about now, I want to parallel to the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s, actually, you know, going to the 60s. You know, you think about the March on Selma, you think about John Lewis, who died recently. I mean, think about that experience and how that essentially empowered entire nation of black people. And so, you know, so despite how horrible it was at the time, look what happened. I mean, it wasn't immediate, but it, it basically revolutionized the country. So even though these, these events are so, like I said, horrific, they can turn things around. Another thing that people can do is find a sense of community. And what I mean by that is, is, is to come together and be together and share with each other how you feel. Sometimes people do that in faith communities. Now, faith communities, of course, haven't been able to gather. Or even people in general haven't been able to gather like they typically would. But find ways to create a sense of community, whether it be on a one-to-one basis or with a group, so that you can talk about these things in a way that can release some of your feelings, as opposed to you know acting out in a way that might not be so healthy or might be um, perhaps even you know negative towards others. I'll just put it that way. But essentially, there's a lot of things you can do to to cope that basically revolve around self-care as well, just taking care of yourself mentally and emotionally that can help you get through these times. Things like meditation or other types of relaxation techniques, you know, on a, on a very personal level. I love that. And for people listening, just some tools, you know, based on what you're talking about, like I use Insight Timer, which is a free meditation oh, I do app. too. I do too. I, I do too. I, I love, love it. I love Insight Timer. Isn't that great? I love, I love like uh, typing in like, stress relief or anxiety or like reset. I just type in like whatever, like I really want to fix. And yep. it's so beautiful. They have such I, great I thought, I thought I was Insight Timer's biggest fan, but of course <laughs> you, have a, you have a bigger audience. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love Insight Timer. I think it's fantastic. Also, I'm a huge fan of the Newsfeed Eradicator Chrome extension. It literally eradicates your feed so you can't see your feed so pretty much when i check facebook i just see my notifications and messages i don't see any of the feed um it really helps my mental health i do disable it like once a week just so i can catch up on what people's lives are because everyone just posts there now um Mm -hmm. so you know like once a week i disable it to try to catch up on people's lives but 99 percent of the time it's you know, on and I don't see people's feeds. And it's fantastic to not have that like scrolling and constantly see people's information. I also use self control, which is a tool for the Mac to block social media for when I have to really focus and I when I don't want to, you know, (laughs) be stuck on scrolling all of the time. And yeah, I think finding community is so important connecting with friends. Um, For people listening, you may or may not know that we have the Mental Health and Wealth Hangout, which happens every other Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. It is a free kind of support group for, you know, lack of a better term, where we just talk about mental health and money, and it's a safe space. So if you want to join us for that, you are more than welcome. That's cool. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. It's been good. We've been doing it for a couple of months now, and it's growing, and we have some regulars. And yeah, it's been great. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. And for people that have come, it's just like, oh my God, I can't talk about money and mental health anywhere else. And, (laughs) you know, it's so like weird and liberating because there's literal strangers that we're all just talking about mental health and money, even though 
you know, some of us are becoming friends because they're regulars, but it's, it's, it's been really, really wonderful. Cool. So I wanted to uh, shift gears a bit. So you are an advocate for mental wellness in the workplace, which I love, and as a leader. So how has your mental health affected you being a leader? And how has being a leader affected your mental health? And, you know, how can you kind of manage that in the workplace? Because I know a lot of people feel like they have to hide that in the workplace. But I'm wondering how, how you manage that and maybe use it to your advantage. First of all, of course, like many, I've evolved over time. I've been working professionally for 28 years. And when I first started working, I was a counselor, basically frontline, so to speak. I was in a, in a position where I was learning. But eventually, I transitioned to uh, higher education, where I worked for 12 years, where I did you know, work in admissions primarily, but I did some administrative work. I, I was a coordinator of transfer students. I, I was uh, an administrator at a community college, and then I was uh, associate director of graduate admissions, where I you know, had more responsibility. That was a time when I learned a lot about my own mental health and how to take care of my mental health, especially when the fact that I was still getting better, I would say. You know, one of the reasons I re-entered the world, or I entered, I should say, the world of, of higher education was because I had a bad experience working as a counselor. And I felt like I needed to get out of that profession at the time. Mm-hmm. So when I, re- when I entered higher education as a way of, of kind of changing direction and you know, entering a profession that I thought, <laughs> I thought would be less stressful, but certainly it had its own stressors too. And it definitely affected my mental health. I remember an experience where I had working at the community college in the area that I would come home. And I remember one night I was crying because it was so, mm-hmm. I couldn't handle the stress. And, and, you know, but I, what I learned though, through that experience was that there are some things that I can control, but there's a lot of things that I can't control. And what I can't control is the actions of those around me. Now I can try to influence others. I can try to direct others. I can try to uh, guide others, but I can't control others. And what happened in that situation was that person, I ended up like they were controlling me and I didn't recognize that. So one of the valuable lessons I've learned as a leader is that you know, certainly we can direct people, we can guide people, we can encourage people, we can empower people, but ultimately we can't control them. But I think as a leader also, as far as my mental health is concerned, I had to learn how to deal with the stress in ways that would allow me still to, to produce, to perform the job. Because remember, you know, whether you have a mental health concern or not, bottom line is you got to get the job done. Now, certainly I've worked in places where my supervisor, my, my executive directors have known about my condition, and they have been very sensitive to that, especially when you work in the mental health realm, of course. I mean, that was where, I mean, that's a perfect place to say, hey, you know, I've got this condition, you know, do you understand? And they, usually they do, but this is mm-hmm. not everybody. I've been very fortunate, Melanie, that I've had this. Uh, most workplaces don't have that capacity to have HR professionals or executive leadership to understand Oh, you know, you're dealing with this. Well, okay, you're okay. You don't have to. You don't have to maybe come in today, or you can take that mental health day if you need to. Um, a lot of places don't recognize that. I think also the fact that I've had the experience of living with a mental health condition for so long that I've I've just learned the coping tools, the coping skills to be able to manage the stress. So as a result of that, I've been able to share that with others. And so one of the things I've done recently is, I, I, like you mentioned, I wrote a book called Leadership Through the Lens of the 12 Steps. And the book was written based on my experience in long-term recovery from addiction, 
and also going through a leadership program. I went through a leadership program several years ago, a couple of years ago, where I learned how to be an effective leader and through collaboration and teamwork and so and, and self-exploration. So I've taken these experiences and I've put them into a, a, basically a workbook that people can use with a coach, preferably, to help them aspire and grow and develop into that better leader and develop their potential. So in the end, what I'm trying to do is help people learn the ways they can do that so they can get to that place where they want to be and evolve and grow. I love that. And I think that's so important. And you know, having a, a workplace that can understand your mental health struggles is so amazing. And I hope that as time goes on, that it becomes more and more normal for people to speak up about their mental health issues without any stigma. I hope it becomes more normalized to say, hey, you know what, I need a mental health day. Because I think right now, a lot of people just pretend they're actually sick, like, oh, <laughs> I'm sick. But really, you're just like, I'm too depressed to get out of bed, but I can't say that. And, you know, that's unfortunate that people have to lie to get what they need. And so I'm hoping that, you know, as we start having these conversations and as hopefully the tides turn, that this becomes more normalized, that we are all dealing with our mental health and dealing with work. Like, even if you don't have, quote, mental health issues, everyone has mental health. Like, everyone has mental health and physical health. And, you know, whether you have like an issue or not, like you're still going to have that stress, you're still going to have things to deal with and things to manage. So I hope that we can continue to move the needle forward with this conversation. And thank you so much for your wonderful workbook. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to add on to that, I think certainly with COVID, we're all recognizing the need for better mental health and ways to deal with mental health. And I think Certainly, employers are recognizing that their staffs and their employees are dealing with these things, perhaps that never had to deal with them before. So hopefully, and the one word I like to use, uh, Melanie, and a lot of the work that I do is empathy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for leaders to have empathy for yes. the people for whom the people with whom they work. And when I say with whom with they work, I suppose who work for them. I think that's a big difference there in terms of leadership. I like to think of myself as being a servant leader. I like to think of myself as being someone who I work with people, not you know, have people working for me. And so in the end, if you have empathy for your employees or for a person who comes to you saying, hey, I'm struggling, I'm having a really hard time, then I feel that I'm more capable to say, listen, Take the time you need uh, to the best that you can. I mean, obviously, if it's an essential job, we might need to work around that, but we can do it. We can figure it out. There's no problem that's that's unsolvable when you talk about these things, because in the end, we want to take care of people. And I think that's so valuable these days that we take care of each other. Yes. I think if companies take a people first approach, you know, things can definitely change. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing interview. I've loved talking to you about all of these things and you've offered so much insight. I'm curious, do you have anything else you'd like to add and, and where can people find you? Sure. Uh, well, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is there and certainly you can follow a lot of things that I do on LinkedIn. My website is shallowhornconsulting.com. Uh, you can reach out to me there as well. And the main thing I want to just say is that I'm excited about the work I'm doing now. This is evolution in my own kind of journey as a professional. And, and basically, what I like to think is that I've taken you know my entire life experience, my entire life of living and long-term recovery, my entire professional experience, and, and just help people. Because honestly, the main reason I wanted to get into counseling and, and help people in the first place is from my own lived experience that people help me. So I want to do the same for others. 
I love that. Paying it forward. That's so awesome. Exactly. Well, let me say, we have one saying is that, um, you know, we only keep what we have by giving it away. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so wonderful. Well, thank you, Melody. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mentalhealthandwealthshow at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.